So good morning, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Come and See Inspirations. Uh, my name is John Keeley, and it's the 15th of August. It's the Feast of the Assumption of Blessed Virgin Mary. As I said, my name is John Keeley, and help me to produce the programme, present the programme again this morning. Shane Ambrose, good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we doing? Good, thanks. And we want to welcome everybody who's listened to us again, our regular listeners and possibly new listeners who are listening to this edition again. As I said, I've come and see Inspiration. It's a podcast that includes face stories, interviews, chat and various topics with invited guests, discussion on the Sunday Gospel and, of course, some inspirational music. And all these and other recordings are available to be downloaded and listened to on comeandseeinspirations.bushbrout.com. Just Google Come and See Inspirations and you'll find us there. We're also available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and iTunes. Listeners can text us on 087-6088-667. That's 087-6088-667. Or internationally, I believe, Shane, it's 0035387-6088-667. Or email us on comeandseeinspirations at gmail.com. That's comeandseeinspirations at gmail.com. To start us off this morning, Shane, you should share some saints for the week. I see you've got a busy one this week, Shane. Where would you like to start, I suppose, start from today? Yeah, so there's, there's, a few, um, there's a few on the calendar this week, so a couple of interesting ones. Obviously, today is Sunday, the 15th of August. So on the Irish liturgical calendar and around the world, it is um, the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which, of course, was declared uh, by... Pius the twelfth um, uh, in 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 nineteen in the nineteen fifties I think it was and and it's of course it's it's a patronal feast day actually for a couple of countries actually which is strange enough so France India Malta and Paraguay it's their kind of their national feast day today so moving on uh, so next week is the twentieth week in ordinary time for those of us praying the Psalter we're on week four. So Monday, the 16th of August, is the feast day of St. Stephen of Hungary. Now, Stephen's an interesting one. Um, He's generally seen as kind of the first Christian king of Hungary. His patronage is of Hungary predominantly. He's also a patron of masons, stonemasons, stonecutters, and bricklayers, oddly enough. And it's an interesting one. He was baptized at the age of 10 with his father. He was king of a group or a tribe in Hungary called the Magyars. And... um, then they were involved very much in spreading Christianity in that part of the world, and he united them into a single nation. And up to the, up to today, he's still known as the Apostolic King. And uh, so he, he's, he's a, it's a big it's a big it's a big feast day for 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 Hungary today on on Monday, Tuesday the seventeenth is of course in Ireland. It is the feast day of Our Lady of Knock. So it is the, the dedicated, of course, to the, 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 the apparition at Knock, the silent apparition at Knock, which, of course, would uh, be particular celebration, I suppose, this year for the shrine, given that it has been elevated to an international Marian shrine by Pope Francis. And, of course, we always remind people as well, as, being a Mar- as well as being a Marian shrine, it is also very much a Eucharistic shrine as well. And just to remind people that... Um, it is open for business. The shrine, the shrine is open. The basilica is open. There are masses. I think there's five masses a day. Um, there is, there are confessions available, limited uh, with restrictions. They are available, and both the parish church and the apparition chapel are open for private prayer. So Wednesday the 18th is the feast day of Saint Helena of Constantinople. 
She was the mother of Constantine the Great, so he's kind of important because um, he was the first, uh, he was the emperor, the Roman emperor, that issued the Edict of Milan, granting um, freedom of worship to people within the Roman Empire. And he was, he converted and was baptized to Christianity on his deathbed. But Helen, Helena, or Helen, Helena's position is quite unusual. She, as she was his mother, obviously enough, and she used, when he became the emperor, she used her high position and wealth in the service of her religious enthusiasm and helped build churches throughout the empire. And she's famous. There's a lot of churches who are, are places which are associated with her. And in particular, in the Holy Land, she's associated with finding the true cross. So at the, around the, in her late 70s, she and a group of her friends, are a group rather, headed off to the Holy Land. They unearthed three crosses around 326. And at the suggestion of St. Macarius of Jerusalem, she took them for a woman afflicted with disease and had her touch each one, and she was immediately cured. And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, the, the original church, is attributed to uh, St. Helena. Um, she sent pieces to Rome of the True Cross and Constantinople, and she's generally depicted in art holding a wooden cross. She's the patron against fire, against thunder. She's a patron of patron saint for archaeologists, difficult marriages because her first husband put her aside. And she's also the patron saint of nail smiths and needle makers, which is an interesting one. Then on Thursday, we have the feast day of St. John Oudes. John died in 1680. He's a French saint from Normandy. And he spent 20 years in the French oratory and then left to found a congregation to improve the standards of the clergy through the seminary system. He also founded the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity and Refuge and is very much remembered as being a powerful preacher and also associated with promoting devotion to the Sacred Heart. Friday, the 20th of August, is the feast day of St. Bernard. Now, Bernard of Clairvaux, he is known as the Melifugius Doctor of the Church, and he's the last, he's regarded as the last of the fathers of the Church. Um, he died in, on the 20th of August, 1153. Now, he was born of French nobility and himself, four of his brothers and 25 friends joined the Abbey of Situ, and um, he laid, which was a Benedictine Abbey at the time. And then he left and led and founded the monastery of Clairvaux, where he was the abbot for many, many years, which became one of the Cistercian founder Cistercian houses, which is a reform of Benedictines. Uh, ultimately, it had 700 monks and eventually 160 daughter houses. Um, he was an advisor to kings, he advisor and uh, to, 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 to popes. Um, he fought against heresies in France. Uh, he preached in France, Italy and Germany. And he is most probably famously associated with preaching and helping to organize the Second Crusade. He, from an Irish point of view, he was a friend and biographer of St. Malachi O'Moore. And um, he was proclaimed a doctor of the church by Pius VIII. And, and he, every morning he said, St. Bernard would ask himself, why have I come here? And then remind himself of his main duty to lead a holy life. He died in 1153. He's a patron of beekeepers and bees, candle makers, the Cistercian order, obviously, uh, of, of Gibraltar and of wax refiners and wax melters. And then finally, John, on Saturday, we have the feast day of St. Pius X. Pius X, he died in 1914. He was a, he, before that, before he was elected Pope, he was the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice. 
So he was elected Pope in 1903, uh, very much involved with pastoral liturgy and sacramental practice. And Pius X is famous because he's the guy that lowered the age for the reception of Holy Communion. Um, so he was the one that lowered it to the age of seven or the age of reason, the age at which a child can understand that which they receive. So that's Pius X, whose feast day we celebrate on the 21st of August. All right. Shane, thank you very much, Lee, for that. So um, just one notice just to bring to listeners' attention. Uh, I just got an email in it from it uh, about it just a short time ago. And this is from um, from NOC, from Father Richard Gibbons, the PP of NOC, who will celebrate Mass, the 11 a.m. Mass uh, today uh, from NOC. And this will be uh, an outside broadcast covering of this Mass will be produced by Carrier's Communications and will be televised on RTE1 and RT1 Radio, and also on the Udivision Global Network. So making it available to France and Belgium, Netherlands, and a few countries uh, around Europe. Attendance at the Mass will be restricted to 200 people on a first-come, first-served basis, with strictly queuing systems in place. The liturgy will feature music by the Scola Cantorum Basilica under the direction of Una Nolan with organist Charles O'Connor. The Mass will be live-streamed on the Knox Ryan website. So that's today, later on today, um, at, um, at Knox Ryan. Shane, I'm not too sure if you've got any, any particular... No, no, no other major notices. Just next week, just to let people know on the podcast, Rose O'Connor is going to join us from the diocesan office, and she's going to be sharing with us about the season of creation and the whole issue of La Data Sea. Very topical, of course, given the publication of the report during the week, by the international, um, that, that international report about climate change was oh, published yes. by the UN. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so she'll be on with us next week just to talk about that. In the meantime, there's a spiritual communion prayer that we always pray here on the programme, especially for those who can't receive Jesus at Mass today. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul, since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as being already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. So now it's time to go for our first bit of music. And as Shane just reminded us, uh, this week, of course, we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of Knock. So maybe our first bit of music suitable would be um, Dana singing Our Lady of Knock. So join us again in part two, where we've got a very interesting guest to join us.
So welcome back to part two of the program this morning. My name is Shane Ambrose. Delighted that you're here with myself and John for our program on what is, as of course, a special day today, of course, because it is the Feast of the Assumption. So we are delighted to have with us this morning um, Imelda Wickham. Good morning, Imelda. How are things? Good morning, Shane. I'm very well, thank you. And you? 
I'm not doing too bad now at all. We're delighted to have you on, uh, have you on the podcast this week because you are just after publishing uh, with Messenger Publications a very interesting book called Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain. So um, you have spent, was it how long were you working in the prison system? About 20 years. Wow, that's quite a period of time. But Long before sessions. we, <laughs> you'd have been out sooner if you killed someone. <laughs> so, um, but before we dive into into the book itself, Imelda, I suppose maybe if you could share a small bit about yourself with our listeners this morning, in terms of maybe your own story, where you're from, so uh, your own vocation story as well, because you're a member of the Presentation Congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm from Wexford. I was born and reared in a small little village called Bree, uh, outside in Escorthy, and I went to the local primary school there. And then when it came to secondary school, I cycled six miles into an Escorthy uh, for a number of years for secondary education. And uh, at the end of that time, um, I think all for forever, I always kind of felt that I would uh, join a religious congregation. That was something I always had in mind. And uh, not being too sure where to go or how to go about it, I decided the easiest thing was to join the people that I knew. So I joined the presentations in Wexford and um, did my novitiate there and then moved around to different places around the country. And um, I taught in primary and secondary school for a number of years. And uh, but during all that time, uh, I always felt called to work in a prison. And... um, Obviously, with religious congregation, you're asked to do this and do that and go here and go there. And I did all that for a long time. And eventually, after a number of years, I said, now is now or never. And I remember going to the provincial and said, look, I've had this dream for a long, long time. Uh, would you ever free me up to just let me go and do it? And they did. And uh, so having um, got permission, I went to Chicago and I studied um, um, social justice there and a bit around um drug addiction and these kind of things. And then I moved up to Toronto and I did the clinical and pastoral education course in a women's prison in Toronto and um, flew back to Dublin, applied for a job in the Irish prison service, was successful. And I started in Wheatfield prison on the 1st of September, 1999. So that's my life story in a short, <laughs> one short that's, sentence. That's, that's 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 running that's running through it very 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 <laughs> quickly. So you 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 worked you ministered in Wheatfield Prison in Dublin. Yes. Okay. And so for, for those three years, pardon for three years during that twenty years, I was also national coordinator of prison chaplaincy within the Irish Prison Service. So I've had access to other prisons in, in the country as well. So that was a big experience for me, a good experience, because it gave me an insight into all the prisons in the country, the open prisons, the, the closed prisons, the high security. So those three years were, were, were years of great experience. And uh, then my years in, in, in Wheatfield, I suppose, grounded me very much because I was there day in, day out with the prisoners. And it gave me a wonderful insight into lives of people in prison and also into their families. Mm. And uh, I suppose the families always had a, a special place in my heart. And I think maybe later on I might talk a bit about the families of people in prison and uh, just to talk a bit about that, because, um, you know, I often say they're the people who maintain sanity in the prison because they keep in touch with the people there. And they're very, very significant in the life of the of the prisoner. And also, I think, in the life of the state by the, mm. the great service they provide by visiting their, their loved ones in the prison. Mm. 
And looking back over looking back over twenty years of of ministry in 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 the prison system, uh, Imelda, for you, what would be kind of the kind of the key things that you would take from that experience in terms of the learnings or the moments of grace that you would have had while ministering to people in prison? I suppose what I would take with me was, you know, since I came out of the prison, I've had time to to reflect on it. Mm. And particularly during the first lockdown, you know, during that COVID when we all had to cocoon and I was one of them. And I suppose reflecting back, what really struck me was the great resilience that the people have who are committed to prison and the sheer humanity. Like, I suppose you meet humanity as Ross there when you go in there every day. You're meeting people who've lost everything. They've lost their freedom, maybe lost their good name. Many have lost their family. They've lost contact with their children, with their spouses or whatever. So it's a very, very difficult time for people. And yet within that situation, I found great life. I found great faith at times. I found people with tremendous hope, people who never gave up people who coped with all sorts of issues, with deaths of their loved ones that they couldn't even attend their funerals, people who suffered from addictions, people who suffered from mental health. And somehow within that experience, there was a sense of community among us in that prison. And as chaplain, we were also chaplain to the prison staff. So in actual fact, as chaplain, you were chaplain to the whole prison community, from the governor down, and um, maybe I should say from the governor up, but whatever you want to look at it. But... um, so you were with these people day in, day out. And for me, there was something special about it. And I suppose I asked this morning to, to play that um, song, The Bright Blue Rose. And I asked for that because we used to often sing it at Mass on Sunday morning. And the liturgy within the prison, there's something very special about that too. It's about people coming as they are. There's no makeup, there's no pretense. I'm not coming because I have to come. I'm coming because I want to be here. But I'm coming with my own vulnerability, my own nakedness, I want to be here. And we were there as a community, staff, people in prison, all of that. So these were the things. And I suppose the other thing is a moment of grace. I spoke about the families. And I suppose I've often taught, we talk about the unconditional love of God. And you can't preach a family about that. There's no way you can do it because people have to experience it. And I would say that I experienced that within the prison walls. Mm. And it was the unconditional love of the families who kept coming week in, week out, very often for years at a time, and never gave up. And I suppose I also thought then of the people in prison who never get a visit, who've nobody, and the sadness of that. And yet within, these people still had to live life within that situation. And to look at how they're in other panels of whatever you want to call them, colleagues in the prison, how they support them through that, and how the staff supported them. So all of these things really, when you talk about moments of grace, there were many, many moments of grace. And John, you asked for a prayer yeah, to the Holy Spirit um, before we started. As I used to go into the prison in the morning, I saw often call on the Spirit to say, would you ever guide me where I'm supposed to go today? Because it was a big prison, there were 500 people there. Will I go left or will I go right? Where will I go? And that's all you could do really, you know. And you also got in touch with your own vulnerability because I think with meeting people there, we all, we walked the road together and I think they helped me as much as I helped them. Mm. Two words that struck me there, Amelda, when you when you were talking about it was fa- places of faith and places with hope, finding, finding faith and finding hope. Um, two words, I suppose, for many people that you wouldn't necessarily 
associate with a prison environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose looking at the faith side of it first, like um, kind of, you know, I suppose I suppose explain to people on the outside the prison walls, like you know, if a, if a person is so participating with liturgy or talking to the chaplain, they do that voluntarily. They don't have to do it. It's not part of the of the of the regimen in in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, again, when you say what's faith, people don't say me. You go around talking about God. We didn't. But in that conversation, very often, you know, in telling their own story, and they'd often talk about their grannies, they would often mm. talk about their mothers, and I think that's where they got the faith. And maybe they mightn't be practicing it, or they might think themselves they had lost it, but deep down it was there. And I suppose when we talk about hope, what's hope? And in a sense, I would have been with people who maybe felt everything was hopeless, there was no hope. And, um, you know, I think Pope Francis said recently when he was talking about prisoners, he was saying, you know, we have no right to deprive people of hope, that people who come into prison need to be given that hope, that there is hope, and that there is hope at the end of this, of, of this life for them. But to meet people who kept that hope alive in spite of what they were going through and in spite of everything, and people who, you know, very often as a chaplain, you'd have to go and, and um, tell people maybe their mother had died or their father or someone dear to them. And again, how they would respond to that and how they would want to pray for it and maybe begin to pray with you at a time like that. So there is, you know, I often think of the thing I have not found such great faith in Israel. Um, that's in the gospel where I can't say where, but I could mm-hmm. say at times I have not found such great faith except in the prison. That's why I found mm-hmm. some great faith. Um, and uh, I suppose I suppose sometimes when we talk about people in prison, you know, there's the, the whole dynamic is around the, the, the penal system, the legal system, and 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 the person ending up in, 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 in prison. But often, of course, there's a lot of public disdain, public maybe anger, depending on what the crime is, which can be loaded onto a person in prison's shoulders. But often what strikes me is what's forgotten is they are someone's son or daughter or someone's brother or sister or someone's partner or husband or wife, whatever the case might be. So sometimes the families sometimes um, get missed in the whole dynamic. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we would do every morning, you'd go around to the the cells where the people would come in the night, the committees had come in the night before, and they maybe have come from another prison or they were committed from the courts. But... um, as I sat in front of that person, I always said, this man could be my brother, my father, my uncle, um, my nephew, whoever it is. And I suppose I also said to myself, no matter what they had done, I always said, I could have done the same thing. Uh, I would have been capable of doing the same thing, you know, given mm. um, different circumstances. And um, so like when you talk about this system, I suppose one of the reasons I have written the book is I have grave difficulties in, 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 in for a time. I used to ask myself, why am I working within this system? And am I contributing to this system? Do I want to be in it? But I stayed because I felt that being within that system, maybe uh, in reflecting on her, calling other people to reflect on it with me, it could bring about some change. But the, the criminal justice system is in serious need of overhauling, in serious need of reshaping, being brought into line with 21st century psychology and all the knowledge we have around human behaviour. And... Um, it's a system that I think looks more towards punishment rather than towards rehabilitation. Um, like the words I use instead of punishment would be 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, healing, restoration of right relationships, the whole thing of restorative justice, that kind of thing that I think we need to start looking at. And a whole way of looking at how do we how do we deal with the people who are involved in crime? How do we how yeah? So I suppose, Meta, what I would say to you there first, okay, if we if we if we if we unpack that a small bit for, for yeah. our listeners, okay. So the first thing there is you use the term restorative justice or a healing as well. So I suppose for many people, the concept that for with that you know where they don't have daily interaction with 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 the prison with prisons or with people in prisons, is that I suppose prison is seen very much, uh, you know, like the Victorian concept, punishment. It's something. A person has done something, they have infringed on a law and they have been found, you know, through the legal process have been found that they have done that. So I suppose for, for some people, I suppose they would say to you, well, that's what that's what prison, that's what I understand prison to be. So when you talk about restorative, the restorative process, restorative justice, could you maybe expand on that, maybe explain what does that mean to people who might not have heard the term before? Okay, can I just maybe add as a little addendum that um, I always say like chaplaincies around building relationships with people mm. and people who are sent to prison, they're deprived of that opportunity to have a relationship with anyone, any kind of meaning relationship. So when I talk about restorative justice and again, that's, that's only one way, like I've asked for a conversation where all people are involved in this conversation. I think anyone who reads the book, particularly the last chapter, will pick up that what I'm calling for is a national conversation around how we deal with perpetrators of crime. And there are lots of very, very strong views. And I, my view is only one. And I think we need to hear all views. But when I come back to the restorative justice around giving, issuing an invitation, it has to be by invitation to the victims of crime and to the perpetrators of crime to come together in a, in a, in a controlled situation where they can be facilitated in explaining to each other what happened and what, what happened to them. Like for the victim to be able to say, this is what you did to me. This is how it has affected me. This is how it has affected my family. This is how it's affected my whole life. I'm damaged forever around this. And for maybe the perpetrator to say, well, look, at, it wasn't you personally. I don't know what he's going to say really because everyone will be different. But for mm -hmm. that person to be able to say, maybe give some indication what was going on in him or her that they committed this crime or that they did whatever they did. Mm -hmm. So it's around that. But it's by invitation only, and I think it's, it's, it's done in a facilitated way that would help. But it's around restoring the right relationships, because again, when a crime is committed, it's, it's around breaking relationships. There's a, a breakdown in relationships. And how do I restore that? And I think it's not just between the perpetrator and, and the victim. It's also about society. I think mm. society has a lot of, of responsibility for its prisons. And many, many people, I mean, how many people do you know have any contact with prisons? I probably know a lot of them because I've worked in a prison. But my own family would have no contact with the family. And they'd just say, what, I don't know what you're talking about. That's nothing to do with me. But I think society has a grave obligation to look at what causes people to come to prison. And if society really put their hands in the heart, they said the only, the only way we are going to deter people from going to prison is to create a more equal and just society. Mm. And we all have a responsibility about that. You know, and we can argue forever about punishment, about retribution, about reparation, about atonement, whatever it is. And all these are words and very significant words and very real words. But I think we've all got to sit down and I've got to listen to victims, I've got to listen to perpetrators, I've got to listen to their families, I've got to listen to society, I've got to listen to the people who, who would say, lock them up and throw away the key. I think we've got to listen, and we listen with the heart as well as the head, and then say, well, 
what is the most what's the most positive thing we can do here? What kind of a society do we want to create? But if we keep locking up the perpetrators of crime and letting them out, and if you look at prisons today and the high rate of recidivism, mm. the same people are coming back into prison over and over again. And I keep saying, if I went to hospital in the morning and I got out and I went back next week and I came out and I got, people say, what's going on? What are they doing? But nobody ever asks, what is happening in our prison system that the same people are going back in? And it's not the fault of the prison system. It's the fault of the it's the fault of society. Society has to look at how do we create an equal and just society? And then how do we deal with the perpetrators of crime in a healing, restorative way? Mm. Now, and... You know, I, I think I said in the book someplace where it, the cost of keeping someone in prison for a year, I think it's around 70 grand or 80. I'm no good on figures, but it's around that. And if that money could be employed someplace else to help people stay out of prison rather than putting them in. Mm. Uh, I, and I that's that's that was that was a point I was I was going to draw down with you as well. Like there was there was a report, I, I don't know recently, was it from the Irish Penal Trust or someone like that, where they were discussing the rates of recidivism. That's, you know, okay. where people will commit crime again and in, end up yes. going back into prison. And yes. the percentages, the, the repeat was absolutely, it was astronomical. Absolutely. But, but yeah. and like you said, though, there's a linkage, there's a linkage there in terms of, um, uh, the, 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 I suppose, as you said, societal justice is part of it as well. Mm. But then I suppose some people would turn around to you, Melda, and they would say, well, okay, but is that is that taking away their agency? You know, that's saying that you know their their circumstances are 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 responsible for what's happened to them. What what about their own abilities and 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 things like that? And I suppose where I'm going with that as well is it's linking into something that you 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 discussed in the book, which is the issue of the treatments of addictions that needs to be provided to mm-hmm. to people in prison. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's fair to say from there are a lot of people. Who are in prison because they have addiction issues. Yeah, that's correct. And 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 I've argued for years that we should be establishing treatment um, drug um, addiction treatment centres because there are many different types of, of, of addictions, and we should be looking towards addiction treatment centres. And I've also spoken there about mental health people with with mental health problems. And I suppose to go back again to you know this question of free will, because um, <laughs> I've thought about that a lot. The whole thing of I mean, as I walked around the prison and. I'd meet people and they'd tell me, you know, they were guilty. They'd say, yeah, look, I did do it, blah, 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 and we're gone. And they, 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 they have no problem saying, yes, I did it, I'm responsible. And um, and yet, when I would reflect on what they would tell me as well as that, um, so very often I said to myself, are they really guilty? Who is the guilty one here? And over the years, I remember many, many mothers coming to me, you know, whose young sons had come to prison. And they would tell me how, you know, Johnny or whatever was no problem, grandchild. And at a certain stage of his life, you know, he began to get into trouble. He began to show different um, attitudes to things. And she felt, you know, there's something happening here. And she would have gone for help. But there was never a help, never a help. She was always at the end of a waiting list. She couldn't get the help she needed. She couldn't get the services. There was always a waiting list. And then he was in trouble and he ended up in prison. And of course, there's never a waiting list in the prison. People just, there's always room in a prison. Mm. And I've often reflected on that and said, like, had these people been given the help in the very beginning, that would never have happened to them. And when you look today, how are we treating our families today? All the homeless families, you look at the homeless children um, that are on our streets, that are in sleeping in guard barracks at night time, that are sleep, sleeping in family hubs. So really, it, I think it comes back, a lot of it comes back to this. Of course, there's free will and of course, there's innocence and guilt. But 
there is a little phrase, and I, I haven't got it now, but there, there are things that diminish my guilt. Um, and maybe sometimes people don't reflect. That's why when I talk about the unheard voices, I want the voice of the prisoner to be heard, because if you look at the criminal justice system, if I commit a crime in the morning, the state will take over. And I won't get a chance to speak for myself, and my voice will never be heard. You know, we have the legal issue, the legal um, people, then you commit the prison. So there is a, a point where we have to stop and listen to the people who have committed the crime as well, and try to get to the bottom of why did they do it. Because I, I say in the book over again, over and over again, I've never met an evil person. I've met people who've done evil deeds, but I know that deep within me, I'm as capable as they are of doing things. So it's about trying to understand human behaviour, human nature, and trying to get some other way of dealing with it. Because I think if, if, if I commit a crime and they're going to lock me up for whatever number of years, it's not going to do anything for me because they're depriving me of the means that I need to become a different person. Mm. And that's, you know, and we can't blame the prison, the prison system. I, I, I would say that we need maybe very, very small prisons here and there, but not the numbers. We're incarcerating far too many people. And most of these people don't need to be in prisons. And I think there need to be other alternatives. And like, I think if we sit down and talk about it, these alternatives will emerge. We look at other, other new and creative ways of dealing with it. Otherwise, we're going to keep going ahead. And as you say, the recidivism will just get, you know, the percentages will get higher and higher and we'll achieve nothing. So I think it's time we start talk to each other, talk to the families, talk to the victims, talk to the prep, talk to you know, and just listen and see what is the way forward. We're a small country and I think we're capable of doing it. And you know, we say, well, we don't have the money. Of course we have the money. We have money for everything. So we have money for this. And surely we have money to, 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 to uh, um, help people who are mentally ill. They should be in hospitals. If we have money to put people in prisons, we have money for, for treatment centres. So it's about really uh, reframing our thinking, coming up with a new mindset. It's, it's all about a mindset, really. And um, I mean, I hear uh, a lot of people would, would, would challenge me on what I'm saying and say, you know, I'm soft on crime. I'm not. I believe that we have to be accountable. I believe that we need law and that we need justice. And um, but I'm looking for true justice. I'm looking mm. for true justice. Um, a justice that will heal and restore, and a justice that will make life better for society. And um, I also feel that um, when I looked at, uh, you know, the people in prison, and there are many people out in society, you know, who maybe have <laughs> done wrong as well, but they're able to, you know. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a new way of thinking, but I think the time has come to stop doing the same thing that's not working over and over again and just say, look, let's come together, let's talk, let's listen, and let's come up with new and creative ways. Thanks, Imelda, for that. So as you said, your, if you like, your invitation to this national conversation, which needs to be had, is your book, which is Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain by Imelda Wickham. Just, uh, sorry, I'm not sure if I said your full name at the start of the interview. <laughs> and it has a foreword by Peter McVerry, the, the Jesuit. It's published in Ireland and the UK by Messenger Publications, and it can, it's priced around uh, 12 euros, 12.95. But Imelda, as well as, as well as the book and the invitation, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to, to this conversation that you're, that you're, that you're in, issuing, you're also, uh, you, you, you finished up with the prison, so you're, you're now moving in a new direction. Some would say, you know, after so many years, maybe time to settle back and kind of take <laughs> things easy, but... Then again, I've never, I've never yet a religious priest or sister who sits back and retires. You are setting up um, a new support service 
for families of people in prisons. Do you want to tell us a small bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to tell you a bit about that, actually, because I'm sure many people listening maybe have people uh, belonging to them in prison. Um, as a chaplain, I would have had a lot of contact with the families over the years, um, mainly by phone. And there was, there was never enough time to meet them because I was, you know, constantly in the prison. But when I would meet them, and I suppose the one thing that was always coming across was there was very little support for them. You know, somebody came to prison in the morning, they were left out there. A picture for people who had never had any contact with a prison before, or for people maybe whose son or someone belonged to them had committed a very serious crime. And there was absolutely nothing there for them. So I always said, if I ever got a chance, um, I would do something. And actually, I was still in the prison when, remember in 2018, it was the year of the family. Mm-hmm. And we're all talking about families. And I said, <clears> now was the time because, you know, people are really interested in families now. And I said, now is the time. So um, I decided it was time maybe to leave the prison. And uh, so we set up an organization. We called it New Directions, Support for Families of People in Prison. And... Um, the idea was to give people an opportunity, like when someone for example, goes to prison, um, it's a very, very difficult time. There's a whole stigma, there's a whole um, breakup of family relationships. Uh, there's a whole thing of how do I cope with this, what happens? They're worried about the person in the prison, they're trying to cope with life on the outside, and they've no place to go. Even for practical information, they've no place to go. And very often, as well as the practical information, they're looking for maybe emotional support or a listening ear. And that's what New Directions is about. Um, I have three people working with me and um, I've got trained therapists. We're not saying that people who come to us need therapy, they don't, but they do need a listening ear or that emotional support. So that's what we're providing for them. And uh, we, 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 we set up a house in Dublin and um, we started in Dublin, that's where I was living. And I suppose most of the prisons were there. But then, and with the COVID, when COVID came, uh, people have been coming to the house. The idea was they'd come, have a cup of tea, sit down, have a chat, tell their story. Um, because I had worked in the prison for so long, I, you know, I understood what they were talking about. I they didn't need to explain to me what it was like for them. So that was happening. And then with the advent of COVID, obviously people come and come. So we had to sit back and say, what are we going to do now? So we began to work on Zoom and on video and on telephone. And you know what? It has worked marvelously well. I said, really, you know, I thank COVID for that because would you believe we've had people contacting us from America, from England, and from Donegal to Kerry, and people who wouldn't have been able to come to Dublin, come to Dublin because they wouldn't have the, I mean, the cost of it and the time involved. So now people can take up the phone. And what usually happens is somebody who has somebody belonging in prison, they give me a call or they'll send me an email and I ring them back or they'll ring me and we'll have a chat and I just see what are their needs. We talk about it. I invite them to come to the house if they want to, but they don't ever have to come because we can now do it as we are doing it here this evening on video and Zoom. And really, it's a wonderful way of doing things. Um, it opens up. It opened up our whole service to the whole country. And it also like that we have prisons in Cork, Limerick, Castlereagh, all over. So all these people can come to us, and um, it's a free, confidential service. And I think that's the important thing. Um, people can come to us in confidence. They can talk to us about whatever whatever their needs are. And we cannot, like, I suppose all we can do is offer them a listening ear, but very often in talking things out, they come to their own resolution. They, they, they find themselves. And a lot of people come to us as well and say, look, at how do I tell my children that their father's in prison? How do I communicate with my kids? How do I communicate with my teenagers? These kind of issues, people have financial difficulties, um, elderly parents, their son maybe who's looking after them has gone to prison. So there are so many issues surrounding. And, um, and I suppose I have met those families coming to the prison. 
and now I'm meeting them outside the prison. So it's the same issues. And um, I would like just to extend an invitation to any family out there who have that, just to give us a ring, send us an email, uh, and uh, we're there at the other end of a phone or an email. So that's um, just so, so for people, for listeners this morning that were just looking, that maybe want to get in touch. So the website is um, familiesofprisoners.ie. And the telephone number and the email address are on it. So the telephone number is a, it's a mobile number, 087-609-7686. And then the email address is familynewd, so D is in direction, so familynewd, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And we will put the links to that into the podcast information so that people can uh, access that as well for listeners that want to, to get that. Um, Amelda, we're delighted to have you on the podcast this morning and to share your story with us and the invitation uh, that, you know, the call that is there, I suppose, for that uh, after 20 years of experience in, in, the, in the prison system. So like we said, her book that's available from Messenger Publications is Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain, written by Imelda Wickham, with forward by Peter McVeary and uh, available from Messenger Publications. So to conclude this part of the podcast this morning, uh, Amanda, you had asked us to play a particular piece of music. Can you just tell us what it is and maybe just why you picked it? I would like you to, to play the bright blue rose. And um, the reason I want that is, um, I suppose, it's, it's a memory I have from our Sunday morning liturgies uh, in Wheatfield Prison. And with a song we very, very often sang, and you would hear a pin drop why we'd be singing that. Very often the prisoners themselves would sing it or sometimes we might have a visiting, um, um, whatever you want, a singer in with us and it was always very, very popular and it's something that I love. And uh, there's a lovely line in it, for those, what was it now again? Um, for those, for all who seek to understand. And I think life is all about trying to understand, understand myself, understand each other, understand why we do what we do or whatever. So I just love that line. Perfect. Thank you, thank you, Melda, very much. Thank you, so, uh, so, John, to play us out. Right. So, we'll go with uh, "Bright Blue Rose," and this time it's sung by Mary Black. So, back and join us um, in the next part of our program, where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel, the Word of God. I skimmed across black water without once emerging now. To the banks of an urban morning That hunger is the first light Much, much more than the mountains ever do She, like a ghost beside me, goes down and emerges unlearned, unshamed, unharmed. For she is the perfect creature, natural in every feature. And I am the geek with the
So welcome back again to the third part of our podcast here today. Thank you again for staying with us. For this part of the program, we read and reflect on the Word of God. And before that, uh, we invite Shane always uh, to pray this prayer that we always pray before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed nor our minds wander but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Shane. So, as Shane said, the Gospel for today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 39 to 56. Mary set out and went as quickly as she could to a town in the hill country called Judah. She went into Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now, as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She gave a loud cry and said, Of all women, you are the most blessed, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why should I be honoured with the visit from the mother of my Lord? From the moment your greeting reached my ears, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Yes, blessed is she who believed that the promise made to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit exalts in God my Saviour, because he's looked upon his lonely handmaid. Yes, from this day forward all generations will call me blessed, for the Almighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy reaches from age to age for those who fear him. He has shown the power of his arm. He has rooted the proud of heart, he has pulled down princes from their thrones and exalted the lonely. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich sent empty away. He has come to the help of Israel his servant, mindful of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, and his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then went back home. So that's the gospel for the Lord. That's the gospel of the Lord for this week, uh, the Feast of the Assumption. Imelda, have you got a thought or two you might want to share with us, please? 
I suppose when I, whenever I read um, any of the Gospels where Mary is mentioned, I always think of her motherhood. And I think of her at that time, she just, you know, realised she was pregnant and she headed off, he said, in a great hurry to her cousin Elizabeth. And th that meeting was tremendous. And I suppose the reason why I think maybe of the motherhood of Mary so much, I suppose I've been in touch with so many mothers over the years, um, the mothers, particularly mothers of people in prison. And I often think of them and... Um, Pope John uh, or Pope Francis tells a lovely story of when he was living in Buenos Aires and one day he was driving past a prison and all the families were outside waiting to get in. And that's a picture or an image I'd be very familiar with because you see the people waiting outside when I whatever. And um, but he noticed in particular the mothers. And I just want to quote what he said. He said, these women were not ashamed that the whole world saw them. My son is there, and they showed their faces for their sons. And then Pope Francis says, May the church learn motherhood from these women and learn the gestures of motherhood that we must have for our sisters and brothers who are detained. So I just think that's of the gestures of motherhood. I mean, you think of Mary's gesture when she discovered she was going to be a mother and going through the service of, or, or the help of her cousin Elizabeth was going to be a mother. So there's something about motherhood and Mary. And I often think, you know, particularly around the, I suppose the, the greatest, and my devotion is always to the incarnation. And I'm always absolutely dumbfounded. Imagine being the, asked to be the mother of God, you know, and what a, what a privilege it is to be a mother. So it's, it's all, you know, I look to Mary as the great model of motherhood. And I think of Mary standing by the cross and what she suffered and what, you know, her all the time she suffered to, to try and understand him, what's he about, what's he doing, what's going on. So for me, uh, the whole theme of, of, of uh, every time I hear about Mary, what comes to me is the whole thing of motherhood, the motherhood of Mary. Mm. It's, it is, it's, it's very much something, I suppose, that is, that is echoing throughout um, this, this, Sunday's, this Sunday's gospel. And I, I'd agree with you, uh, Imelda, in terms of that, that whole the, the, the place of Mary as, as mother as well. What struck me about it as well also is this lovely dynamic between Mary and Elizabeth. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, tradition, I suppose, would say Mary would have been a young girl, maybe, you know, maybe as young as 14, 15, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but she went in haste to go and be with her older kinswoman, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. and generally we translate that as cousin Elizabeth. Yeah. Because Elizabeth, as as we know from earlier in the Gospel of Luke, would have been would have been an older woman when when she conceived John the Baptist. And for anyone that's been to the Holy Land, if you travel or if you look at the, that distance from what is Nazareth up north, down as far as tradition holds, the the town of Elizabeth is a place called Ein Karim, which mm -hmm. is just outside just outside Jerusalem. And it's not anyways a short journey, you know, and it's, 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 it would have been at that time, it would have been a harsh journey, it would have been a long, hot journey, as you, because you're, you're going down the levels almost past the, the Dead Sea and on and up then into the hills of Judea. And the thing that always struck, struck me, strikes me about it, and it, 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 I love looking at images of the visitation. 
and the different ways that it, it, it is presented and the greeting of the joyous greeting of those two young, those two mothers to be. Mm-hmm. Because I suppose Mary had just gone through the whole process of the Annunciation and been told, like you said, she was to be the mother of God. But of course, how do you even start to process that? You know, <laughs> now I'm speaking generalities. Obviously, as a man, this is not something I'll ever have to deal with in person. But I suppose the point I'm making is Mary went to seek counsel and wisdom and to, and also to comfort and not comfort, but to support her cousin Elizabeth um, because both of them had something to share. Both of them had been through similar experience. Mm. And for me, reflecting on that this summer, I suppose, or this, this, this year, I suppose the thing that strikes me about the visitation is that reminder to us that we are called to share our life experiences. Mm. That we need, you cannot, it, it reminds me very much of that quote, you know, no man is an island and apart from, everyone apart from itself, you know, that, that song or the poem from John Donne, which Simon and Garfunkel put into a, a song. And the reminder to us that we cannot journey through life as autonomous, uh, standalone individuals. You know, that great phrase of Margaret Thatcher is that, you know, you know society was dead, we were all the individual. And that that whole reminder to us that that isn't what it is to be human, mm-hmm. to be human. And, you know, and we've said it uh, to be human is to be connected, is to be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And as we've said on the program a number of times again and again, to be Christian is to be in communion in community. You know, you cannot mm-hmm. be a Christian on your own. You cannot it requires you to be part of the wider society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been one of the huge learnings for us during COVID over the last 18 months, that recognition and that maybe for some people, that rediscovery that we cannot do it all on our own. And that was just, that was one of the first mm-hmm. thoughts that struck me, just reflecting on, on the visitation um, this, this, this morning. The second thing that struck me there's a there's a beautiful image. I, I don't know. I, I've, I I was looking for, it, but I couldn't come across it. Of um, Mary greeting Elizabeth, and it shows the two of their wombs. So you can see you can see the, the children mm-hmm. in, in the wombs. And there's the, the image of John, and he's literally almost doing cartwheels for excitement because he's you know he's heard Mary's voice and knows what it means. Mm-hmm. And I just think for me, it's it's a beautiful reminder. Of the of the preciousness of uh, unborn children in many respects, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. particularly in the challenging environment that yeah. we have in the modern world, where as Pope Francis sometimes reminds us that you know older people and unborn children they're sometimes seen as being disposable things to be put away as part of the wider disposable community mm-hmm. or society that we, we we inhabit at the moment, and. You know, we, we look at we look at something like the visitation, where it's if you look at the story that we we or the, the events that we heard in this morning's gospel, the beauty of it is there isn't a man to be seen. It's two women, and it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And for me, now this is only a personal thing, but for me, you know, when we talk about the Trinity, it's you know theological concept that you know sometimes you go, ah, what's it all about? But for me always, the Holy Spirit is the divine feminine manifested in the world. It's love. Mm -hmm. And for all of us, the first and probably greatest iteration of love that we have ever experienced is that of our mothers. Mm 
You know, no matter what happens in life, as you said, Melda, in, in, in part two of the programme and, and quoting Pope Francis there as well, mm-hmm. there, it, it would take an awful lot to break the love between a mother and child. It, it, mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to happen. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, that were, there were the two thoughts, I suppose, that struck me about the, the account of the visitation that we were reflecting on, on this morning. In terms of the Magnificat itself, the prayer, the great prayer of Mary, um, regular listeners to the podcast and to the program know we talk about uh, the, the, the saints and the liturgical calendar in the first part of the program every week. And one of the things I often we call out when we're going through that is we say, what, you know, what's the Psalter for those of us praying the office? And one of the great gifts of that is you get to learn and to appreciate the Psalms, but you also get to learn and appreciate what are called the gospel canticles. Mm-hmm. One of them is the Benedictus, uh, which we say in the morning. And the second one is the Magnificat. You say it every evening as part of Vespers. And it always strikes me, this, few, this glorious prayer that Luke puts into the, vo- into the mouth of Mary in his gospel. For those of us that are familiar with scripture, we'll see echoes of the Old Testament and particularly the song of Hannah um, from the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles. But it's very much, it's Mary's hymn of praise and thanksgiving and just also looking at the relationship that God has with her. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit exults in God, my Savior. And even just to stop there on the first line of it, because one of the challenges with the Magnificat is we know it. The problem is it's too familiar. Yes. Um, you know, many people would have learned it in school or for those of us who pray the office, we say it every day and it loses its power. Mm-hmm. It loses the forcefulness of what it says to, to, to stir up the heart, to stir up the soul. You know, if you, if you just even think about that line, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit exalts in God, my Savior. This small, humble Jewish girl was saying that her whole being was exulting in the relationship that she had with her God because of the great blessing that he had poured out on her and that she was going to bear the Son of God. You know, and reminding us of the, the, you know, holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age from those who fear him. He has shown the power of his arm and routed the proud of heart. Now, his mercy reaches from age to age for those who fear him. I suppose the reminder I would say to people that that sometimes can be interpreted in a very negative sense. But when, when we talk about fear in that regard, it's not subjugation. It's not you know, bound down in fear. It's that wonder and awe, that old expression that was there. You know, it was was an old expression from the Catechism many of our older listeners will be familiar with. But there's an element of truth to it, wonder and awe in the love and majesty of God and the fact that, you know, the creator of the universe is interested in you and me. At the end of the day, we are loved by God himself. And, you know, that he is there and waiting and willing and open for us to turn back to him again and again and again. And it struck me, Imelda, just listening to you, when we were talking about that whole discussion and listening that needs to be done and that, that discussion in terms of restorative justice that we had in part two and that whole idea that that restorative justice is available to us in a faith context because we are always open to turn back to God. Yeah. That yeah. whole metanoia, that whole sense of turning back, because God is very near, He's just waiting for us to turn around and, and 
like the 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 the, the father and the, and the prodigal son, he is waiting once more to embrace us. Mm-hmm. And that one other line, I suppose, that that the two lines from the Magnificat that struck me particularly this week as well, and I'll, I'll finish up with this, is that he has pulled down princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich sent empty away. And those, the Magnificat is very much a prayer which, um, what, what, what was called liberation theologians, people that have looked to the message of Scripture and God's place with the poor and the downtrodden, they have very much taken Mary's hymn as, as part of that whole discerning of God's journey with them in life. And that reminder to us, he has pulled down princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. The reminder to us that God is with those who are not on the top of the ladders in life. He's not necessarily, well, he is. But the point is, he's very much also with those that are seen as being on the bottom rung. He very much is walking, accompanying those that seem to be in the pits of what society describes as being in the pits of despair or down at the very lower levels and seen as being failures, as those that are seen as being outside the scope or whatever it is of success that society defines. And the reminder that the hungry he has filled with good things, the rich sent empty away. And that for those that go to God, it's not necessarily... There's ways you can understand that term hunger. You can understand it, obviously, uh, in the sense linking with last Sunday's gospel, where Jesus was talking about being the bread of life and the whole uh, feeding of the 5,000 and so on and so forth. You have that physical hunger as well. But there's also for those that hunger for that spiritual sustenance, that sense of fulfillment, not fulfillment, but that sense of being, that sense of completeness. As we, we talked about in the program a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about St. Augustine and that overused expression, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Mm-hmm. But that reminder to us that that's a hunger that's within each and every one of us. That's something that's hardwired into us, that even the most ardent atheist will accept is part mm-hmm. of being the human condition. Mm-hmm. And Mary's hymn this Sunday reminds us that there is something, there is someone, there is a being out there who is willing to satisfy that hunger that is within us if we let them, if we participate, if we engage. And as you said, Imelda, that whole idea, actually, I think it's a wonderful one, that idea of motherhood of Mary, the motherhood of God as well, that because that great consoling presence that is open to us all. Shane, thank you very much indeed. And also thanks to Imelda for, for sharing both those reflections. Thanks a lot. So a few phrases from today's gospel uh, caught my attention. First of all, spoken by Elizabeth. Why should I be honoured with a visit from the mother of my Lord? It was Mary and Jesus who came to visit Elizabeth. It wasn't just Mary, it was Mary and Jesus who come to visit Elizabeth. That's the thought that come to myself. Mary, like any mother, is always looking out for us, her children. When we pray to Mary, our mother, for assistance in dealing with life's challenges, I have no doubt she asked her son Jesus to help, just like at the marriage feast of Cana, when the wedding guests ran out of wine. It's just told Jesus of the problem. And he gave them even better wine than what they had before. And so with us. Mary hears our prayer and tells Jesus. He reaches out and helps us through speaking to us through his word, we hear at Mass, or through other people. We meet, and we heard a lot about that this morning. Imelda shared that with us. Jesus speaks to us through people we meet or we read about. 
Not always in the way we might expect to. But if we listen and trust, we'll receive what we need. Maybe more, and indeed more, uh, much more than what we want. But returning to the words spoken by Elizabeth today, why should I be honoured by a visit from Mary and Jesus? I was drawn to reflect on that a few times when my prayer was answered. And I suppose at times, did I in those times ask the same question? Why should I be honoured by a visit from Mary and Jesus? Why should I be honoured? Why should I get these beautiful thoughts and ideas into my mind and maybe somebody else doesn't have that? And what do I owe God for that? Or, or, or how do I repay God? How do I thank God? I suppose the second thought that comes to me in terms of today's Gospel, uh, again, was spoken by Elizabeth. Blessed is she who believed that, as she's speaking about Mary, blessed is she who believed that the promise made to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. There are many examples given to us in the Gospels, uh, promises made by Jesus. This week, I need to reflect on a few of them. First of all, do I believe in these promises? Is Jesus speaking to me, or are these promises for somebody else? Today's Magnificat is a piece of scripture that could stay with me and help me with that reflection. Those are my few thoughts. Imelda, I'm not too sure if you want to share any last few thoughts before we finish up the programme. No, I just, I love that thing there, why should I be honoured? That has never struck me before. It's about powerful, but why should I be honoured? Shame, you were talking there about the Magnificent and the other lovely canticle, uh, the Benedictus, and the line there, the loving kindness of the heart of our God who visits us like the dawn from on high. I just think that's wonderful. The loving kindness of the heart of our God who visits us like the dawn from on high, as sure as the dawn will rise again. It's wonderful, isn't it? Exactly, and it, it's it's a beautiful, it's a fabulous one as well. And it, it reminds me as well of one of the Psalms where it talks about the dewfall, uh, you know, coming mm-hmm. down like the dewfall. When it's one of the morning Psalms as well. And like you said, Amanda, it's 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 the, the they're both fabulous. Um, they're both fabulous prayers, both fabulous canticles, and you could you could spend much much time reflecting and meditating on them. So it's time to to draw our our program for today uh, to a close. Thanks indeed, Amanda for sharing with us, sharing those, those, those lovely thoughts, um, thoughts that we, we can keep with us and, uh, and take with us for, for maybe for the rest of us, certainly for the rest of our life. So much that, that we have to maybe listen back again to and, and hear some of those phrases and some of those thoughts that we'd heard before but maybe didn't take them on board. Thanks so much for sharing with us and uh, Godspeed in all the work that you're going to undertake in the near future. But in the meantime, we'll have to go out with our final piece of music. Uh, final piece of music I picked this morning is by John Michael Talbot and this one, the Magnificat, um, Holy is His Name. So until mm-hmm. next time we meet, from myself, from Shane and from Elder, thank God, take care of yourself and enjoy the week. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior.
Thank you. 